Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts, and uh, we have another of our co-hosts, Jeff Rutt, with us today. Say hello, Jeff. Hello, everyone. And we have a special treat for you today. We have Paul Evans. Paul is a shareholder at Builders First Source. Now, any home builder knows what that is. For people like me that aren't home builders, that is the largest building supply company in America doing about $20 billion in, in business a year. Paul, welcome to the program. Jeff, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the intro there. So thank you for that. We are the largest building supply company in America. So thanks for that. Yeah. You know, Paul's a very humble guy. He submits this uh, bio that says, oh, I'm a VP at, at this company. I start looking it up. And I go, this thing looks big. And I go, you own a piece of this? He said, well, yeah. So not exactly. He's. Uh, you're going to see uh, that Paul is probably one of the most interesting people not only is he a uh, engineer, runs this company, and he's a teacher, a race car driver, and a farmer. So I don't know if we're going to get to all of that, but let me turn it over to our uh, our other co-host that knows a whole lot more about farms and home building than I do. So at least we got a couple of these things. Uh, Jeff, why don't you get us started? Well, yeah. Well, Paul, start uh, start us out with the, the early years. Tell us a, Tell us a little bit about what it was like for Paul growing up and yeah, maybe a little bit about your faith journey. I would, uh, if we had unlimited time, I'd love to go into each one of these racing, engineering, farming, but, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about what it was like in the, in Paul's household growing up. Yeah. So I was extremely lucky to have a mother and father that were married for 66 years. And so I was very lucky to have that, you know, a true family, faith-based family. And, um, so, you know, I grew up in the construction business. My, my dad owned, uh, Evans Brothers Cabinets there in Houston. And so at the age of whatever, 10 or 12, you know, you're out in the shop building cabinets or hanging doors or building door units and, and then going to the job site and installing them. So it was, it was, uh, completely normal to me to do that. I thought everybody else did that. You know, a, a spring break was not spring break. It was spring work, right? So you, you got out of school, but you worked for the week you're on spring break. And the same thing with summer, you know, you worked all summer. And then when dad found out that uh, I could get out at one o'clock instead of getting out at three 30, he said, Oh, good. So it was good and bad. I got a pickup truck because of that. But then the pickup truck had to come from school straight to work, you know, straight to the job site. So anyway, but his big thing was, is that, uh, there were three of us, my, I'm, I'm the youngest, my brother, sister, and I, and uh, he said, hey, I'm going to send all you guys to college and you guys are going to get out of this construction business because this is not a place for regular people, you know. And so, you know, he sent us all to college and uh, my brother and sister both learned that uh, my brother is a, was an airline pilot. He's a retired airline pilot for Southwest Airlines, was there for many, many years. My sister was a CEO of Tuesday Morning, a very large uh, retail company. So she was a C-level. And my dad always used to introduce us that way at parties. He would say, okay, this is my oldest son. He's a pilot at Southwest Airlines, you know, flies major jets. And my daughter's a C-level employee at a very large retailer. And, oh, yeah, this is my youngest son. He drives a forklift for a lumberyard. So, 
that's how he used to always introduce us, you know? And, and uh, so, you know, I, I don't know that I ever told him that anytime there was stock coming available in, in the companies that I work for, the company that I work for, I slowly bought it and bought it and bought it. And that's how I got with a publicly traded company. They actually bought my company. And so, um, so that's how it all kind of, I love the education. I'm an engineer by education, mechanical engineer. But uh, Jeff and I were talking earlier, you know, why did I not stay in the engineering field? I would have if I would have gotten paid anything to be able to pay for all my other expenses, but I couldn't. But what I did was I went to work for a mill shop, a millwork company called Bison Bill Materials in Houston as a sales trainee. And my thought was, I'm going to work there a couple of years and get my bills paid off and maybe put a down payment on a house. And then I'm going to go back to work for Fleur or Brown and Root or some big engineering firm, right? And the, the rest is history from there, Forty over 40 years in the millwork business. I, I always consider myself uh, in the millwork side of it, which is the, I always tell everybody because they don't know what millwork is. I go, well, that's the pretty stuff. You know, that's the that your wife likes, you know, the two fours that your husband likes, but I, the wife likes the doors and the molding. That's what I'm into, you know? So anyway, so that's a, a little snapshot of that. So Bison Mill Materials uh, bought into Lone Star Plywood and Door, and then Lone Star was bought by BMC, and then BMC was bought by BFS. So that's the way that I'll, and so I've never worked for anybody else, but this company the entire time. So. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. So backtrack a little bit. Tell us what those those college years were like for you. Yeah, so uh, that was really odd because uh, I always liked, uh, you talked about race car driver, always really enjoyed the automotive side of it. I liked getting my hands dirty. My grandfather did all our repairs on every vehicle that everybody had. My uncle's, my my brother's car, my sister's car, my car. So change a starter, do a brake job, that kind of stuff. I like doing that. My dad hated it because I always would have greasy fingers coming into the mill shop, right? And he checked my, he would actually literally check my hands before I came in to make sure there was no grease on them because we're building stain grade cabinets, right? And so, uh, so I said, you know what, I want to go to mechanical engineering and maybe get a job in engineering. And so graduated from Lamar University on the engineering side always working on cars kind of on the side. And that's how the racing started. I got upset with my dad because I found out he was paying the guys that I was supervising more money when I came home from school. And I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done working for the cabinet shop. I'm going to go work. For, I went to work for a shop in Houston and the Houston folks will know the name. I went to work for this guy and, and uh, he had an old race car in the back. And I said, Hey, what's the deal with this old race car? So, well, you know, the, the owner of the shop's son is a race car driver. And this is an old car that he had. And, and, uh, he goes, you guys want to work on it? And I go, yeah, I'd love to work on it off hours. So off hours, I started working on the race car and everything. And then I got kind of to know a couple of the crew guys and everything. And so they invited me to go down to a place called Texas world speedway. And it was a huge speedway at the time. One of the largest ones, as big as Daytona, as big as Talladega. And they went out there to scuff tires. And if you guys in the racing business know, you got a brand new tire and you got to scuff it. Uh, so that way it'll come up to temperature quicker. There's my engineering geek coming out. Sorry, guys. But anyway, so we went out there and we started doing it. And I was, I was doing some racing on the side in this old race car. We're doing all my own mechanical stuff, everything. 
And one day we showed up to scuff tires after doing it eight or 10 times. And we scuff, you know, whole tractor trailer rig worth of tires, right? And so we're out there doing it and the test driver didn't show up. And we're standing there, you know, twiddling our thumbs till about nine o'clock. And finally, you know, this guy's name is Tim. And he says, hey, Todd, let Paul get in the car and let him drive the, the car. We were actually driving the car that the, the owner's son was going to drive that weekend. Wow. And to scuff the tires on that exact setup, right? And so I said, okay, you know, here I am, 16 years old. I'm going, I'm in. I grab my helmet, you know, put it on, and I take off at almost 17 when I when I did that. But I took off, and so we're running, and we do this all, you know, all morning long. And about noon, the owner of the shop and his son, the driver, show up. And I go around, I wasn't even paying attention. I'm coming in, they change tires. I go take out another set. So you go about three laps, you come in, you put on another set, go again. So I walk up there and and I hear through the, you know, kind of the noise in the background, who the H yeah. is in the car, right? And they, they go, well, that's Paul. And, and the story goes that they said, wait a second, you mean the kid that sweeps up in the back of the shop? They go, yeah. What is he doing in my race car? You know, uh, you know, Andre didn't show up. That was the test driver. I can't believe I remembered that name. But anyway, so I came back in and they said, get him out of the car. I got out of the car and they got about two inches from my face and said, what do you think you're doing in my race car? And I said, well, I'm sorry. You know, they thought I could do it. And but I understand if you need to let me go because and they go, no, no, you're fine. They turned around. They said, fire Andre. I got a new test driver. Paul's our new test driver. Oh, I was. I was the best driver for AJ Foyt racing for two and a half. So, oh wow! wow. So that's my fifteen minutes of fame right there. That's that's awesome. That's awesome. So that's yeah. how that explains well. So before we dive deeper into the career, but any other faith journey developments in those early years? Yeah. So in the early years, uh, I went to a parochial uh, elementary and junior high only because of my grandmother, lovely woman Mamie Bell. And so Mamie Bell was very insistent that we all went to a Lutheran parochial school there in, in beautiful Klein, Texas. And so I went there from, you know, first grade all the way through eighth grade and then got inducted to a, a real high school, Klein High School, you know, from there. But what, what was great about that was is that, that I didn't know I was being in, indoctrinated into a faith base, you know? It was just automatic for us, right? That, you know, we had God in our hearts and God in our mind through meals and through what we did. And we did the right thing because Mamie Bell said that was the thing you do, period. You know, had nothing to do with the pastor on the pulpit. Although I do remember one, I got to share this. So I'm probably 12 or 13 years old and I never forget this. I've never forgotten it. I'm sitting there. Grandma's sitting right next to me, right? And so we're sitting there and the preacher's talking about stuff. And he goes, you know, by the way, that God is not all knowing. And of course he stops and everybody looks around like, wait a second. I just got out of Sunday school and they said that God knows everything. And if I screw something up, God will know it, right? You know, nope, God's not all knowing. And I look at grandma and grandma says, pay attention. Okay. And the preacher said, God's not all knowing. He's just been around longer than everybody else. And he's seen everything at least once. 
So from then on, I'm thinking, man, I'm going to listen to my elders because they've been around longer than I have and they've seen at least one, you know? So, so that's, I don't know if that's faith-based or not, but that's, that was one thing, you know, 12 years old. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, well, take us through. Yeah. No, I think later on, the other thing that really later on in my life, my wife passed away uh, in 2018 that was very, very traumatic to me, but in a traumatic, a different way, you know, you love your wife, but I loved her as a friend and she was my best friend, may get a little emotional here, but she was my best friend. And, and I really truly believe that reaching out to God through prayer and through, through acts uh, differently helped me through that. And to this day, when I had a couple of support groups, she died instantly no disease or anything. She had a pulmonary embolism, basically, uh, you know, a blip in her lungs made it to her lungs and she suffocated basically. And so I went to a couple of support groups about, you know, and one of the questions in the support group, because there was like 10 of us there and we'd all lost a spouse and some in a car wreck and some like I did, and then others with cancer and so forth. Is it better to lose somebody knowing it's coming or is it better to be instantaneous? And in my mind, I still haven't haven't decided which is better. Neither one is good, right? My point of saying all this and bringing this up is, is that I know that she is looking out for me and us. And she is sitting next to my Lord and Savior saying, everything is cool. You're going to get through this. Keep doing what you're doing on, on XYZ. Don't be doing that anymore, but do this and you'll be fine. You know, so anyway, I, I had to bring that up only because I think it's I think it's real important to, for people to understand how by being, you know, faith driven, it gets you through things like that. So anyway. Well, thanks for sharing that story. And we're certainly sorry for that loss. That's a big one. And, you know, I'm just thinking as you're talking about that, that somebody's listening that's going through something similar and trying to figure out what to do. And I think that idea of getting around other people in a in a group with a similar situation is so helpful. So thank you for that. Okay. So I love these stories and I know you got a bunch more of them. We haven't even hit the farm or all of that, but, and there's, of course, you and Jeff Rudd have a lot in common with this, with your involvement with Homes for Hope and all that. So we want to get into that as well, but maybe, maybe to kind of set the table, you talked about, okay, you went to Lamar University. I think you talked about engineering and then you went to Rice for your MBA, but that was you were sort of sent by, was it your first employer there? When did you end up doing the MBA? Yeah, so so uh, I went from Lamar University, I have a uh, mechanical engineering degree from there, and I went to work for Bison Build Materials, a sales trainee, and then worked into sales. And that was a family-owned company, and, and I always, always appreciated the ownership part of it. In other words, you know, we could go to him and say, hey, we need XYZ machine, and the decision was made right there at that point. And so I go, wow, I, I really like that. So when a sales manager of mine left uh, Bison Building Materials and went to work for a company called Lone Star, he kept calling me over the next two or three years trying to get me to go to work there. I had a really good book of business. And, and uh, one day I'm actually working on a race car in my shop on a Friday evening and he comes by or Thursday evening, he comes by, you know, with a six pack of beer and he comes in the shop and he knows I work there at night. And he goes, he goes, Hey man, you know, I really 
I'm pushing this. I really want you to come to work for Lone Star Plywood Door. And I said, you know what? I said, look, Dave, you and I are friends. I, you know, I appreciate that. But the only way I'll go to work for Lone Star Plywood Door is if you give me, you know, a piece of the business. That's it. You know? And he goes, oh yeah, that like, that'll happen. And we, we went on about our, our day and, you know, I went to work on the car and we drank a couple beers and I probably broke something because I was drinking a couple beers and not paying attention to the, to the race car engine or whatever, you know, but anyway, so about three weeks later, he gave me a phone call and said, you're not going to believe this. I told the guys, Hey, you can give up on him. He's not going to do it unless we give him a piece of the company. And they said, why, why don't we? And so that was the gig. In other words, they came to me and said, Hey, here's, you know, 10% of uh, the Houston location and 5% of all the other four locations. If you'll come to work for us, but you're not going to make any money. You're going to get paid on the dividends of that. And I like the ownership of a company so much that I said, this is it. I mean, this is what I want to do. And so my wife goes, uh, Jamie goes, so wait a second, let me make sure I understand this. You're going to work every day and we're not going to get a paycheck every two weeks like you have been or not even every month, but maybe every quarter. And I said, well, the better I do, the bigger our paycheck's going to be every quarter. And she goes, okay, you know that the the stuff in that garage is going to be parked right now. You understand that? And I, I didn't think about that when I said yes on the other side. But when she said it, I go, I had, at the time I had two kids, little bitty ones, you know, two and three probably at the time I'm going, wow, that means racing and cars are got to be put on the side burner, you know? And so, yeah, they were on the side burner for quite a few years, but yeah. So I go to, go to work for Lone Star Plywood Door. And, and at the time I was also selling, but I was also, since I knew so much about the machinery side, they'd always asked me to help on buying a door machine or repairing a machine, or is it worth doing? And I could never explain to the, to the powers that be how to, how, why we needed this machine and why we, I, I didn't understand a business case scenario, didn't understand that at all. And so the then, you know, CEO of the company said, hey, Paul, there is a, a program at Rice University. It's called an EMBA. It's an executive MBA that's geared towards mechanically minded people on how to be business people. And so he encouraged me to do that. As a matter of fact, paid for half of it. And that's how I went to Rice. And I was telling Jeff earlier, that was probably the best educational experience that I ever had been to because it was so laid back and easygoing. Uh, you know, I went on to, to law school later in my life, but because of a, a similar thing, but that education thought process was unbelievable. And from then on, I could then talk to the executives and, and in some cases talk them out of selling me more shares and more shares and more shares of, of a company and become a larger uh, company owner. So anyway, that's how that all, that's how I got to rice. So good question. Wow. Yeah. Paul, let's, uh, we got a limited time here and there's so many stories. If we have time, I want to come back to the farm, but, uh, tell us a little bit more about let's obviously the, uh, building supply, that whole space is growing nationally and it's growing in your company. Walk us through how that grew through the years. And then I want to get into your journey of generosity and how you really influenced your company in that area. And I think that's, that's a, that's a really interesting part of your story. 
Yeah. So, you know, as a business owner, whether a small piece like I had of Lone Star and then a, uh, when, when BMC bought Lone Star, I took all that in stock. I didn't take any money for it. So I, I became a, not a large shareholder, but you know, a large shareholder down the road of, of BMC. You always get hit up from your, mainly your customers that, Hey, they, you know, Hey, can you come whatever sponsor our, our fishing trip this year with all my superintendents and you, you know, you got 30 superintendents and we want you to go fishing. And, you know, oh, by the way, you can send one of your guys, but we have 30 of your guys and you're going to pay for the whole trip. Right. And, and so it's hard to do that. Or, or the customer will come to you and say, Hey, we're going to build a, a house. I got hit up for, we're going to build a house down in Mexico for a family that, that needs a house and we need building materials or we need cash to go do this. It was always tough for me. Because I, I have Mamie Bell in the back of my head going, you got to do the right thing. It was always hard for me to say no. And so, but but working for a, a then a BMC turned into a publicly traded company, you've got to justify everything that you did before as a business, a 100% business owner. In other words, all I had to do was call the other three guys and go, hey, I want to give away $20,000. You okay with this? What's it for? Da, da, da. Okay, fine. Click. One phone call, right? Uh, you know, a, a, but a publicly traded company, uh, even though, you know, maybe an executive of the company, you, you got to justify all those parts and pieces now. Um, so a lot of times I would just do it out of my own pocket and say it was coming from whatever, just because I didn't want to go through the hassle and because it was the right thing in my mind, but I'm not sure I could have convinced them. So, so it was that, that kind of thing kind of clicked along and, and, uh, I don't know how far you want me to go with that, but I would like to get into the BFS side of it. Now that we're we're at the, this level, I was reached out by a sales guy of mine, Jack Nolte, who called me and said, hey, he said, one of my biggest customers has got a charity deal that he would like for you to personally come to. And uh, Steve Brooks, and I, I kind of knew Steve, but I didn't really know Steve. I mean, I'd see him occasionally and he knew that I was, you know, an executive with BMC and, and BFS now and, and we'd wave, you know, at events or whatever. And that was about it. And so they invited me to come to this homes for hope thing. And I'm thinking, oh man, it's another 5,000 or 10,000. And, you know, we're going to build some house for somebody in, in Botswana and never see it again. You know, I, I, that kind of thing. And, and I, I literally, I, I, I'm not joking. And and I hope I'm not belittling, but I'm, that's exactly what I went, you know? And so I said, okay, okay, Jack, you know, it is a large customer. I actually looked up grand in our deal and said, yeah, they are a pretty good sized customer. I think I'm going to go, you know? So, so anyway, I went and, and the more I sat through the presentation and realized that this money never stopped. And I go, wait, wait, let, let me, and I actually, Jack to this day tells this story. He was going to reach over and grab my arm because in the middle of the presentation, I'm wanting to know more about this, where this money, you know, and, and finally, you know, he just, he knew that he wasn't going to stop me. And I said, Hey, 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 you know, Steve, stop, stop. So let me make sure I understand this. And you got to understand I'm a uneducated guy from South Texas. And you got to understand, I give you a hundred dollars and you go build this house. And then that $100 gets given to this person in a foreign country to then 
loan them the money to go buy a sewing machine. And then they, they give the money back at zero interest or small interest. And if they can't, their mentors have to make it up. And so the money never stops. And Steve said, yeah, South Texas, that's the way it works. <laughs> uh, he goes, so this $100 could last forever. And he goes, well, I never thought about that, but yeah, it really could. And I just sat back in my chair and then I listened to the rest of the presentation. And at the end of it, Jack looked at me and he goes, so what do you think? You know, you don't look real good. And I go, well, you said that, you know, you wanted us to, you know, you know, maybe give the doors or the baseboard or the molding. And I said, no, I said, I want to give every piece that we have, the lumber, the millwork, the doors, the molding. And Jack looks at me like, You've never done this before. I go, but this, I've never been involved in something that, that is perpetual. I call it yeah. perpetual. I don't know what else to call yeah. it. But yeah. Anyway, yeah. That, that's yeah. how that started. You know, uh, I looked this morning, 25 houses later that we've done uh, over the country and, and three in the works right now. And we'll continue to do it as long as Jeff Rutt keeps, keeps this thing going, you know, so, uh, <laughs> it, well, you know. So, well, well, that's it, that it takes uh, someone who's really focused on, you know, a lot of times I feel like, especially in, in this country, we focus on making sure that our mutual funds are in the right fund. Our investments are doing well. Uh, we're, we're, we're investing, we're buying the right things for our businesses. But when it comes to charity, we kind of check out too many of us, I think, you know, check out and say, you write a check. Yeah, just write a check. I'm done. I yeah. did the right thing. Whatever. Let the chips fall where they where they may. Personally, I believe God calls us to be even more judicious and even do our due diligence even more. Be more focused on the, the our charitable efforts and make sure that the you know the in the 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 doctor's oath. What is it? Do no harm. That because charity sometimes can do harm. Mm-hmm. And you. Kudos to you for paying attention, and uh, you knew you had to be there. You were, you were, you were being a good soldier, showing up, saying, "Okay, I'll write the uh, obligatory check." But then all of a sudden, you realize, "Wait a second, this this sounds like this stuff actually. This is really good. This it really works, and it is sustainable. It is something that restores dignity." Uh, but talk a little bit more, Paul, about you've obviously, you know, through the years. Um, I don't know how many years it's been now, but like you said, 25 homes. So thank you. But how have you influenced others within the organization? Because I think that's our listeners. Some of our listeners belong to, you know, organizations where they might, you know, feel like the, the, you know, the lone voice in the wilderness. How have you influenced others? How have you kind of navigated that, that journey? I think the biggest thing, and you know, first of all, I had to had to explain to the to the C levels at at the BMC, you know, how what it was good, and then also we're uh, the company BFS now and the old BMC were market driven, meaning that a local market makes the decision for that local market. Corporate is just a bank. That's all we are. We're the bank that says, hey, you need a million dollars to run your business. Great. What's going to be my you know return for that million dollar loan? So they're the ones who are making decisions on the homes for hope locally. You know, 
they're the ones that uh, that make that decision locally. So I've got to convince them as well uh, individually. But I tell you what, the number one thing is tell that story of perpetual, because every time when I tell that story that, and I'm going to say one, there's an organization that builds houses for low income families, and you support that business or that business model, and you're supporting that one family. Okay. And then once that house is done and that family's there, and then five years later, they actually can make a profit because they can sell that house. Right. Mm -hmm. So in this situation, it's not. Yeah. It's again, not a handout, it's a leg up. And it's just perpetual and just keeps going. And I think that is the story that you've got to push over and over again. I'm not giving you $5,000 worth of material to help build this house. I'm giving a $5,000 loan. Yeah. Uh, somebody to start a business. And yeah. when I said it that way, the CEO of, uh, of BFS kind of sat back in his chair and he goes, so he goes, I don't actually think this is as a charity as so much, you know, just helping other entrepreneurs. And I go, that's exactly what it is. You know, yeah. and he said yeah. it that way. And, you know, he immediately got on his email and sent an email to his people saying, Hey, when Paul calls, takes his, take his call and he'll convince you on this deal. Because I get a list of um, the houses that you guys are getting ready to do and the builders' names and phone numbers. And then I reach out to the market that that house is going to be built in. And I say, hey, do you know this builder? And in, thank goodness, 70% of the time they know that builder. They're already doing business with the builder. And I said, when he calls and asks for this, this is what's going on. And I kind of, I kind of light the fire and then hopefully that builder will kindle it enough to where, where it, 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 uh, will go, go on. There's no, there's no corporate support dollar wise. It all comes from that market. And so that market uh, manager has got to make that decision. My, I don't want to say my job, but, but my push is to get him going, right? Yes. Excited about it. Get him. And most of the time I tell the perpetual story and they're in, you know? Yeah. Well, there's so much joy that there's so much joy that comes from the uh, just the act of giving and the you know, like you said, doing the right thing. Now, from a practical standpoint, you know, Hope International calls it, we call ourselves the uncharity sometimes because it's not really a charity. It's you know, we've raised you know to put numbers to it, we've raised about two hundred fifty million dollars through the years, but we've loaned out about one point six billion. So it's that home, you know, that that person that got that hundred dollar loan and paid it back. That's used for another person. So it and it's used over and over. And Jeff, just because you guys know so much about homes, I'm just worried. I just want to, Jeff, can you give us a, just a two minute explanation yeah. of yeah. works? Because people like me, I'm involved yeah. with hope. Yeah, normal yeah. deal, but the homes piece, I think, yeah. I think I'm probably not alone and not understanding. Okay, building materials get donated. Yeah, where is the flow to where it yeah. comes into a loan? Yeah, and it all it all starts with folks like Paul who get excited about it. But uh, the Homes for Hope is a sister organization to Hope International, Price Center Microfinance Organization. It works all over the world in 24 countries. Homes for Hope builds homes here in America, just like any other home. It looks okay. like the next home on your street, and it's built by usually the same trades suppliers that also that would be supplying the homes for 
uh, that same cul-de-sac. By so it's a, is it a spec home that gets sold for a profit it, and then it, money gets donated? Can be a spec home or a pre-sold home. It doesn't, okay. it doesn't matter. It's it, a normal home building activity. Yeah. You just take the profits yeah. from the home that get built yeah. and that goes to home. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I just yeah. wanted to clarify that for those. Yeah. So okay. all the all the materials and, and labor ahead, that are donated or discounted gets uh, used to go to the to the mission. Yeah. I'm going to make it as simple. This house is not discounted or anything. Right. The buyer. Like your house. So let's say that that house sold for $300,000. And normally that house would uh, would cost whatever, 275000 to build in, in a hard cost. So that builder is hopefully going to get as much of that two seventy five donated as he possibly can. The, the, the developer does the lot. I do the lumber, I do the millwork, somebody else does the installation all the way down the, the road. I've done a bunch of them with Steve Brooks and and you know he's such a generous guy. He always makes up the difference. If he can't right. get that 275, he'll yeah. he'll and he gets 250, he'll make up that that 25,000 and 100% of that right. 3,000 goes to it. And and uh and so I try I even tried to split it with him one time and he wouldn't do it. You know, I said <laughs> right half the check and you write half the check and he goes, Oh no, I'm gonna get you on something else. I go, Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. So I wanna come back to uh, yeah. I wanna come back to Paul. Yeah, and we'll put in the show notes a, a link to Homes for Hope and how it works. But we've we've worked with hundreds of builders around the country. Uh Paul has been instrumental in a lot of these builders uh, with the the supplies of all all kinds of things that go into the home. But to finish that thought, it looks like any other home, any other buyer, it's just the proceeds. Yeah, we got it. And the more you get donated uh, of the materials, the higher the profit. And that goes directly to the charities. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to come back to a principle that, Paul, you talked about earlier that I think crosses all businesses and gets into more of corporate America where I believe personally, I believe that there could be more joy generated through more giving. If there are more folks like you inside the C-suite promoting charity. Uh, and I would love for you to just unpack that a little bit, because I think you're, you're underselling yourself on how much influence <laughs> you have or have had through the years and still have, and we need more more folks like Paul Evans. But what are a couple of key things that you've been able to to do to kind of be the the promoter? Yeah. So you know, I want to make sure everybody understands. I'm not a C level and haven't been a C level because I can't be a C level. I'm not. I'm not wired that way. You know. I believe that the employee's muffler fell off for the fourth time, and yeah, go back to work. No problem. Don't worry about it. You know. I. I've never been a, a C level, but what I've always been pretty good at is when I'm excited about something, I can sell that to anybody. And so I think that that's the thing. If, if, if someone is struggling, to me, that means they're not excited about the product. Uh, and so the product in this case is, and I love the way you say we're a non-charity because it is, it's not a non-charity. You're loaning money. And you're getting that money back. It's a perpetual loan. And so, but what I would suggest, so somebody who who is in this, they've got to be excited. And 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 I'll put my hand up. You just give them my phone number and call them. I'll get them excited about it. And then they could take that excitement down the road. You know, yeah. I think that's the key. You've got to be excited about something. There's been products that 
managers over the time have told me, hey, we need to sell this. It's a really good product. And I wasn't, I wasn't sold on it. In other words, I wasn't excited about it, you know? So it, it just didn't sell. I didn't sell it, you know? So yeah. I'd be excited. Yeah, so- well, the, one of the things that comes to mind is Exodus, Exodus 4 2, where God says to Moses, What's in your hand? He's like, I got nothing. He's like, You got this staff. And the thing that I think about with you is you've been in, you've literally been in, in the billwork business essentially your entire adult life, even with your father in the, and you've got this craftsman sort of, even with the car, hands on. And so you remember when uh, Moses was up on the mountain getting that information. And down below, uh, the skilled craftsmen started making idols. And the and when I the picture that comes to my mind when you're talking is you're the skilled craftsman, and who you can either make idols or you can work on the temple. Okay, and and all you're doing is this is like breathing to you. You're it seems like it's not even conscious to you that you're using the skills God has given you and the place He's put you as a skilled craftsman to point people toward. Joy, as Jeff would say, of, of this generosity, and so uh, I, I just think that's such a beautiful thing. So, for somebody listening, you know, what where has God placed you? What influence do you have? What are those skills, and how do you use them in a in a positive direction? I think that's a great way to look at it. But, and I know as we're running out of time, we always like to ask this final question because we're just all a bunch of business people talking to other business people on the treadmill or in their car listening to this. And they're going, wow, that's an amazing story. He's been part of this thing for this business for 40 years. He's got all this education, all this influence. I don't have maybe all of that, but I got this little business going and I'm I'm nervous about how to use it, but I want to use it as a platform for generosity. What's maybe just a practical tip that a, that a listener could, could use tomorrow morning to take one step further on this journey? So I'm going to give you one that probably is, I don't know, good, bad, or otherwise, but I can tell you one thing. There are two things that I've always thought about. Number one, money is not all the charity. In other words, it's not that, hey, I'm going to write a check for a hundred bucks. It's that I'm going to make the phone call to the guy who can write a check for $10,000, right? Or something like that. And don't ever ask somebody to, for money, for something that you're not sold on. And I, I believe in that wholeheartedly. You know, I've asked, been asked by many times, hey, you know, a lot of important and wealthy people, can you make a phone call? No, no, I'm not because I'm not sold on it kind of thing. The other piece of it is don't worry about the amount of charitable giving. Never worry about it. I don't care if it's a dollar or a hundred million dollars. It doesn't matter because every piece means something. Lastly. You check out that charity's credentials to the nth degree. What I mean by that is, is that, you know, I'm going to say some names, the United Way or the Salvation Army or the whatever. You check their credentials on how much money is actually getting to the core need. Okay. You ask that question. I've been, my wife used to cringe when somebody would call and say, I want you to buy four tickets to the, to the policeman's ball. And I go, for what? Well, so a policeman can go. And I said, so I'm going to actually buy four tickets and four policemen are actually going to go with their wives. Well, not actually. You buy four tickets, two will actually go. The other two are for administrative deals. And I said, when you get four for four, I'll buy four tickets. And I never get a phone call back, right? 
ask those questions before you give out anything, whether it's time or treasure, anything. Yeah. So, all right, I jumped on that bandwagon, but charity navigators. That's good. The the uh, if if I got those three right, I wrote them down. Generosity is not just money. Follow your passion. Don't worry about the amount and check out the credential. So uh, that's it. You got it. He's got lots of tips. So anyway, well, this is wonderful. Paul, thanks for being with us this time. It's been great to hear your story and it'll be an inspiration to many. Thank, Thank you, you very much for the invite. I really appreciate it. And, and uh, you know, God's blessings to you and what you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you Jeff Rudd, thank you for being with us. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, everybody listening. That's been this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. Please uh, leave us your ratings and reviews and share it with a friend. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.